Thank you, Paul. Morning, everybody. Um, so, everybody, I'm sure, recites nightly the Beck vision and mission statements <laughs> and could recite this from heart without even looking at this. The vision statement is, I think, seeing rugby, uh, seeing rugby and beyond... Well, seeing transformation in rugby and beyond as everyone follows Jesus. And our mission statement is this, equipping communities of disciples who make new disciples. So that's what we feel as a church God has asked us to do based on his commission to his 11 disciples after the resurrection. <clears throat> so it seems to me I don't know about you, that it's quite important we know what a disciple is. Um, so perhaps you might want to have a little think about that now. If somebody said, okay, so you say you're a disciple of Jesus, what does that mean then? What would you say? Someone who is disciplined. Someone who is disciplined. Oh, that sounds nice. Discipline, yes, there is discipline. Biblical discipline is an interesting one. Hebrews, it talks about the discipline, which we looked at a few weeks ago, wasn't it? It talks about the discipline of actually being let go through difficult circumstances in order to teach us that we can rely on God and to teach us trust and faith. Yes, anything else? Who follows the teachings of Jesus? Who follows the, someone who follows the teachings of Jesus. That's right. And it says, Jesus himself said, if you follow a master, then the disciple eventually becomes like the master. So it's not just following the rules, it's actually becoming like them, isn't it? Yep. So being led by the Spirit so that the life of Christ is formed in us. Thank you. That's good. I'll, I've got, I'll, I will carry on just because we're a bit short of time because we're starting a little bit late, but thank you. Um, well, what we're going to be doing in this new series is we're going to be looking at something Jesus said about what a disciple is. So all those things we've said are true. There are different ways of looking at what a disciple is. But this is one thing that Jesus said. Oh, did I don't turn the clicker on? Sorry. haven't used the clicker for about four years, so I might very well forget to do it. There we go. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So Jesus says that his disciples will be evident if they bear fruit that brings glory to God. That's not clever, that's just rearranging the words Jesus said. <laughs> but that means if we're disciples, there should be some fruit in our lives that bears evidence to the fact that we follow Jesus, that we're living lives under his discipline. So if we're going to fulfill our mission, then we need to become disciples who are bearing fruit, and we need to raise up disciples who are bearing fruit. So in this series, we're going to look at what it actually means to be fruitful disciples, and quite importantly as well, how we can give glory to God by becoming more fruitful. Um, and today, I'm going to lay out a few things which are going to be unpacked later in the series. But my starting point was 
basically a word search through the whole Bible about fruit and fruitfulness and what it means to be fruitful. And it becomes clear that the Bible has an awful lot to say about fruit and fruitfulness. Right from chapter one of Genesis, first book of the Bible, God designs into every plant and every animal and every human being the ability to fulfill his command to be fruitful and multiply. It's said multiple times in the chapter, chapter one of Genesis, isn't it? So creation itself reveals the fact that God is generous and that he's loving and his intention that everything that he's made should experience flourishing and abundance and multiplication. When the people of Israel uh, were suffering in slavery in Egypt and then living through the discipline of a 40-year journey through the wilderness to cure them of disobedience and stubbornness and not believing God and not trusting him, (laughs) Moses held out to them a promise that God had given them. And that was a promise of a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that was going to be fruitful. And he said this to them, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Fruitfulness, fruitful, abundant living. But he also had to warn them in the same breath against forgetting who was the source of that blessing. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord of your God when you get there by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And he says also, just remember, God didn't choose you because you were anything special. (laughs) Quite the opposite. He's chosen to give you this because he is good. And what happened was when Israel trusted God and when they obeyed him, And when they were faithful worshippers of God, the land itself prospered. The nation was a witness to God's power and his goodness. But when they forgot God, when they worshipped idols, and when they lived by their own inclinations, the land and the weakest in society were exploited to the point of exhaustion. So when they suffered... They grumbled, when they prospered, 
they grew selfish. <laughs> and when God did eventually bring judgment on Israel for their faithlessness, they once again entered into slavery in a foreign land. And the land itself went to rack and ruin. There was no one there to tend the crops, to make the land productive as God had commanded us as human beings to do. So what's all that got to do with us? <laughs> well, it's really important to understand that in the Old Testament, the natural world echoed and displayed spiritual realities. When God's people lived in his ways, they were blessed, and they were a blessing to the world around them. God intended his people to enjoy the fruit of his grace and his generosity and to be fruitful themselves by offering back to him the fruit of the land in thankful sacrifice, remembering him where it came from, but also giving glory to his name by lives which honored him and witnessed to him. So blessing went with obedience. Fruitfulness, abundance went with faithfulness. That was the idea. But let's just beware of being lazy and selfish here in our thinking, getting too materialistic. Some Christians have taken what we see in the Old Testament and said, therefore, if you're a good Christian with lots of faith, you will get lots of money and health and wealth and all of that. But Jesus, when he came, <laughs> he to some extent broke that connection between God's favor and material comfort. So in Jesus' time, if you had a physical disability, it was thought that somehow you or your parents had sinned somewhere, so God was punishing you for it. Jesus flatly contradicted that, said that is not the case. He looked at a widow giving her last couple of pennies into the temple offering and said that is more precious to God than millions given by some rich person who wants to get recognition and praise from other people. He said, we can always trust God to give us what we need. We don't need to live in fear of scarcity. But he also asked a rich young man to give away everything he had to the poor. He told the crowds that anybody who wants to follow him needs to deny themselves and take up their cross and be prepared to give everything for the gospel, even if that means their life. For what good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. He said, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because they've got more to lose if God asks them to give it all up. It's more difficult to leave that comfort zone that Paul was talking about last week if you're very comfortable. And I think it's as demanding a calling to be a rich Christian as it is to be a poor one because the spiritual dangers increase as you get richer. It's a less obvious problem. You see, Jesus came to bring immense and previously unknown spiritual blessings from God that put physical, material blessings into perspective. He came to bring us peace, forgiveness, 
reconciliation with God. He came to bring us a complete example of how to live by the power of the Holy Spirit in daily reliance on the Heavenly Father. He brought us a certain hope of eternal life guaranteed by his resurrection. He brought us a worldwide family that stretches back in time and that will stretch forward in time under the fatherhood of God. He brought us complete transformation of our inner selves by his presence in our lives. He frees us from all the ways that the world would try to make us feel small or inadequate or powerless or unsafe or unloved or unacceptable. We have spiritual blessing upon blessing in Christ. You just read Ephesians 1, where Paul's words are almost tripping over themselves as he tries to explain just how much God has blessed us with and how much he's poured out his grace upon us. And we should never, ever take these for granted, as Paul was saying about communion. We need to keep coming back to this place of knowing how much we are blessed, experiencing the blessing of God in our lives, because... Those spiritual blessings are our strength and our fuel for becoming fruitful disciples. It's what we were designed for. It's the reason we're left here on earth to live out our natural lifespan after we've been saved. We're to bring glory to God by bearing much fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. So for the rest of my time, I'm going to describe briefly, I think, the two major aspects of what Jesus' teaching was about being fruitful. Um, because, it's, it, as I said, we're going to look into it more over the next few weeks. But before I tell you what I think, um, just have a little chat with somebody next to you or around you. What do you think it means to be fruitful? And why does Jesus use that analogy of fruit for what can be shown in our lives when we're a disciple? Have a little think. What does it mean to bear fruit, to be fruitful? What is fruitfulness? Why fruit anyway? Okay, there's obviously uh, some good discussions going on, but 
If I can just call you back, that'd be great. Thank you. So this is what I think Jesus teaches about fruitfulness. The first major teaching he gives about fruitfulness is fruit reflects its source in itself. What do I mean by that? That's a bit of a complicated way of saying it. In the spring, I love blossom, okay? It's so pretty, isn't it? You see it everywhere. Oh, spring's come, hooray. But if you show me the blossom of a pear tree, the blossom of an apple tree, the blossom of a plum tree, uh, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Some people here probably would. Good gardeners, good for you. I don't. Um, But once the fruit starts to appear and to ripen, it becomes obvious, doesn't it, which tree it's from. One's like this, one's like this. Um, And you don't get one kind of tree producing the fruit of a different tree. You wouldn't get an apple on a plum tree. A key aspect of Jesus' teaching on fruitfulness is that your inner life will eventually be seen in your outer life. For good, or for bad. You can fool some of the people for some of the time, but not all of the people all of the time, right? And God, none of the time. He says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It has to come out. (laughs) Now Jesus says this on the back of some very practical teaching about not being judgmental and condemning others. He says that if we're not scrutinizing our own failures and bringing them to God in repentance if we're not sufficiently soaking ourselves in the grace of God as he forgives us yet again, we will become harsh and critical of others. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Our inner life will bear the fruit of condemnation. But if we live in daily awareness of how much we rely on the love of God, we will bear the fruit of love and forgiveness towards others. I sometimes think, you know, when a Christian publicly turns their back on faith or commits some kind of shocking sin that nobody saw coming, we can be pretty sure it's not come out of the blue. Something will have been going badly wrong in their connection with God for some time. Maybe not visible to others, And that's between them and God. Just let's be sure that it's not happening to us. (laughs) So bearing fruit that gives glory to God is all about a transformed inner life. Good fruit, I think, is any speech or action that reflects a heart connected to God's heart. I'll say that again. Good fruit is any speech or action that reflects a heart connected to God's heart. Good fruit is an outward evidence of the life of God at work in us. And our goal is to increasingly bear the fruit of a changed life. 
It's a goal, it doesn't depend on what resources we have, it doesn't depend on the outcome of our labours, and it doesn't matter what we achieve in earthly terms. That goal cannot be frustrated if we remain connected with the life of God. So before coming to the other major way, I think Jesus talks about fruitfulness. Here's a little quiz for you. It's quite a simple quiz. Fruit or not fruit? All you have to say is, is what I'm going to say fruit or is it not fruit? Okay. Okay. Apples, fruit or not fruit? Fruit. Bananas, fruit or not fruit? Fruit. Wheat, fruit or not fruit? Broccoli, fruit or not fruit? Acorns, fruit or not fruit? Getting some disagreement now, aren't we? Sweet corn, fruit or not fruit? Rhubarb, fruit or not fruit? Tomatoes, fruit or not fruit? Ooh, solid feeling about tomatoes. <laughs> Cucumber, fruit or not fruit? Okay. So I should have told you at the beginning, I am going by the botanical definition of what is a fruit. Apples are fruit, botanically. Bananas are fruit, botanically. Wheat is fruit, botanically. Broccoli is not fruit, it is a flower. It's not even a vegetable, it's a flower. Acorns are fruit. Sweet corn is fruit. Rhubarb is not fruit. It's a leaf stalk, so therefore it's a vegetable. Who knew? You're having a vegetable crumble. (laughs) Tomatoes are fruit. Cucumber is fruit. What defines a fruit? That is the question. Thank you. Seeds. Every fruit contains seeds. Every true fruit is an ovary that ripens after flowering to bear seeds. The part that we often think of as fruit is often fleshy, it's delicious, it's nutritious. The only reason for that is to encourage birds and animals like us to eat them and spread them around after processing. (laughs) We'll just leave it at that, shall we? (laughs) The purpose of fruit is reproduction. Purely and solely, which is interesting, isn't it? Jesus was a lot more connected to the natural world than most of us. I think he knew this very, very well. And in the parable of the sower, he talks in Matthew 13 and elsewhere where it describes the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed that falls on good soil and produces a crop that is 160 or 30 times more than what was sown. So the seed produces plants, which produce more seed, which produce more plants. That is the nature of physical life on this planet that God has designed. And it is what God has designed for spiritual life too. When Jesus sends out his disciples to make new disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is that as we learn from Jesus under his discipline, we learn from him, 
One of the marks of our fruitfulness is that we will help to bring others to salvation and we will teach them to follow Jesus in the same self-reproducing way. Now, this is a big challenge for all of us, I know, including myself. The natural way for grapes to growing on vines to reproduce is to have seeds within the grapes. It's only years of specific growing techniques that have bred the seeds out of the grapes because we prefer to eat them that way. And the question God asked me when I was thinking about this was, has the church in the West bred out the reproductive qualities of our fruit? Are we, by our example and the way that we disciple people, breeding out reproduction from the next generation? It's a sobering thought, isn't it, that what God designed into us to be fruit that multiplies, we are busy breeding out because like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we've grown selfish and comfortable with the blessings that we've been given to pass on to the world. When Jesus looked at the crowds of people flocking to him in Capernaum for teaching and healing, he said to his disciples, very well-known words, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. But in that same passage, it also says that this plea was prompted by his compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Doesn't that just sum up so many people today? Mark and I went to a nice National Trust property the other week, had a lovely day walking around the parkland, walking around the house, looking at the rose garden, sniffing the roses, literally. Um, <clears throat> and then we were just sitting on a bench at the end of the day next to another bench where there was a woman waiting for her husband and son to come back. And as they came back to her, she started talking to us. They were just there a few, <laughs> few yards away. She started talking to us about how she was at her wit's end with what to do about her relationship with her husband because of the way that her daughter was causing difficulties with it. And she was saying, and we were saying, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? I've tried it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm going to blow. I'm going to blow. And her husband and daughter had walked off at this point to get back to the car because it was the end of the day and the place was closing. And she was just saying, I don't know what to do. I've tried, I how am I going to do? What am I going to do? And in the end, we, we just said, we'll pray for you. We are Christians. We believe God answers prayer and he can change things and we'll pray for you. But people are harassed and helpless. The driving force between Jesus' ministry and his mission was compassion. And it's sometimes that is lacking in us. Karen and I, some time ago, we introduced the principles of bless to this church. Simple, biblically-based principles about praying for people, listening to them, eating with them, serving them, and sharing the good news of Jesus with them when we got opportunity. Now, we all always knew that this was just a tool to help us know where to start with reaching out to people we care about or might just meet and who we want to introduce to Jesus. A good starting point. A tool. 
But you know, you can have all the tools in the world, but they're no use whatsoever unless you want to use them. How many people here have got gym equipment at home they do not use? Or a gym subscription? Hmm. How many people have got cooking books which are all about good dietary food which you should be eating? And we still prefer our pizza and burgers and donuts. Without a transformed inner life and a heart of compassion, bless will feel like an imposed burden or a set of rules that we just resent and ignore. But when God breaks our heart for people who are doomed to life now and forever without him, bless and other things like it will become a life-giving tool to help us see the life of Christ reproduced in others, which is our purpose. You and I were designed for fruitfulness, for the sake of God's glory and for the needs of a harassed and helpless world. As I finish, let's pray. Let's quietly ask God to just highlight one thing for us. What is it? that he's saying, is he saying, pay attention to that inner life. You've let that connection with me grow very, very strained and thin. Don't let it snap. Pay attention. Let, my, let your heart be changed. Know again, experience again all of God's goodness and love so that out of the abundance of your heart will flow goodness and love? Or is he saying compassion is what you need? Is he saying let your heart really be broken for the people who don't know me, who just have to cope on their own, who don't even realize that they're going to a lost eternity? the people who are oblivious to the spiritual side of life. Lord, help us to be fruitful. Change us so that we may go and see your life change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.